All right, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. So the end of chapter 6 um, has a kind of section that relates, it kind of comes into here, just as a reminder, uh, the first two chapters focus on epistemology, they focus on the need for divine revelation, it pits itself against the idea of rationalism, what comes out of the hearts of men, and empiricism, what has entered into the eye or into the ear. Uh, we have that against partisanship um, inside of the church, that there are human philosophies and human teachers and that what we need to do is we need to judge everything by the philosophy that comes from the mind of God, the wisdom that he loves and has given. Now, this allegiance to people, a fond admiration to people as opposed to the ministry of Christ and his word is something that causes sectarianism. It causes division. And so there's warnings in chapter 3 about worldly wisdom there. And so chapter 4 focuses on the idea of being ministers of what has been given to us by Christ, being, being those who are careful to administer the mysteries that were given by God, those things that were hidden that have now been revealed. So there's this idea there of looking like a fool to the world while holding to the wisdom of God, and there's a desire for sort of a rhetorical flourish. There's a desire for things that are aside from the word, and we are called to take the word and to be able to present it, to tear down and to destroy falsehood by deconstructing it and to be able to present the positive assertions that are revealed from heaven. Chapter 5 deals with immorality in the church, sexual immorality, and it deals with the idea of the church court and that we should not, when we get to chapter 6, sue brothers in the civil court before coming to the church court. And so the civil court is something that we deal with those who are outside of the church in. If a brother refuses to heed a decision of the church court that's lawful, then they are to be considered not a brother. And if they're to be considered not a brother, then it becomes lawful to take them to the civil court. And so we go to the idea of a general obligation to glorify God in our bodies and also with our minds. And Paul begins to deconstruct some of the phrases, some of the sayings that are used, all things are lawful for me, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, he starts to show how these people have taken these little sayings and have some truth in them and how they've abused them. And so the Apostle Paul begins to show them the incoherence that they lead into. And so we get to the end of the chapter and we're reminded of verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So there's a, there's a reminder of the institution of marriage by God. And there's also a reminder of the idea that marriage is ultimately about the union between Christ and the church. And so the spiritual union between Christ and the church is a thing where there is a thing called spiritual adultery, where if we are not obedient to Christ, that we are breaking covenant with Christ. And so that can occur with literal adultery. It can also occur with idolatry. And so we get to verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. The word is pornea. 
Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality, pornea, sins against his own body. That's definitional for us. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So a sexual act with the body outside of marriage is pornea. We get to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, there's sort of an answering of questions. Paul, we have in the first verse, it says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Right? So he's now starting to answer questions that they wrote to him about. And so the addressing of issues, he's going to help us to see those. He's given general principles at the beginning, and his concern is based upon the report of sectarianism. His concern is that unity comes from having a shared authority and a shared doctrine. And he's concerned about certain principles of action, and he wants to make sure that everybody gets to this idea that they need to glorify God with the body. And that then is going to be general principle sets that govern how he answers the rest of the letter. So we get into this part, and he says... It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, what's this about? This is the idea that the word touch there, to not touch a woman, that word touch can also be translated as light. Um, this idea of lighting of a flame, that there's, a, there's a, a danger of a fire of lust, the passions of it. So touching in such a way as to cause sexual desire is particularly in view here. Um, and he's asserting that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's generally the case. At the same time, Verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So he's saying, sure, that's good. This seems to be another saying. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. But there's also the danger that if you do not have a lawful sexual outlet of lust resulting in pornea. And so the idea of marriage being important Every one of you young persons, every one of you who's not married, whenever you have sexual desire and you have to deal with it, that is an indicator from God to work on getting married. That's what it is. That's an indicator to work harder, to be ready, to be in a position to get married. That's what that is. So you control that. You do not give loose to it. What you do is you control yourself and you divert those energies into figuring out how to be ready to get married to be ready to be the kind of person that a good spouse would want to marry and then putting energy into getting married that's what the sexual desire is an indicator of so let each man have his own wife let each woman have her own husband so there's a general rule sexual desire is a spur a goad to get married and to do the work to get married verse 3 let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. So verse 3 is teaching us something that, well, let's just, plainly what it's saying is, a husband has a duty to have sex with a wife whenever she wants, and a wife has a duty to have sex with a husband whenever he wants. That's it. That's what the text is saying. That's plain. Are there exceptions? Yes, if you're injured, right? If there's some sort of a health reason. You can be merciful to each other, and you can delay. It would be hard on the other. And at the same time, there are lawful reasons that will be explained, like fasting and prayer, or if you're a soldier and you have to go off to war, or you're a sailor and you have to be able to be apart for a time in order to sail. Right? Those kinds of things, lawful callings, are reasons to delay that. 
At the same time, this is the general rule. And there's something here that is countercultural in our time. In our time, feminists rail against this because the idea that men should be able to have their wife have sex with them whenever they want is something that they find very distasteful. Well, when this was written, the thing that would have been shocking is the idea that women have a right to have their husbands come to their bed. That's the thing that would have been shocking. So there are two things there. There's the ability to fulfill the sexual desire in a lawful way, and there's the ability of the woman to get the man to help her to have a child. Because sometimes men are afraid to have children, and the wife wants a child, and she has a right to them. Because if that man dies, then she needs to have sons to care for her. And so children are the thing that the husband and the wife owe to each other, and sexual gratification is what they owe to each other. And this text plainly teaches it. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, mutual consent, both parties, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice the sense of urgency there. Okay, fine. You want to have some time of fasting and prayer, you can do that. But then reunite sexually, quickly. Don't let there be a time that's long between. So we ought to play this, with this. It is important that there be an availability and a frequency in the marriage. And it's also important that there not be a keeping apart. Setting up snares for yourselves is foolish. Now, notice what immediately follows. But I say this as a concession. What's the concession? You don't need to set apart time for fasting and prayer to stay away from the sexual union. The concession is, okay, that's lawful, but you don't have to do that. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. There's no commandment to take time apart from each other. Verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The argument is, look, this is a concession, not a commandment, because even though I wish everybody could contain their sexual desire with the degree that I, Paul, the apostle, can, that's not real. That's not the way things are. And everybody has their own gift. So if your gift is marriage, use it. So the Apostle is saying, he recognizes the different estates that people are in. Each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The calling to singleness looks like this. Are you a eunuch? First category. If you're a eunuch, you are called to singleness. The transgender movement, to a large extent, makes its strongest arguments by talking about eunuchs, by talking about people who have some sort of deformity or damage. And you go, what are they? Well, they're a man or a woman with an injury or deformity. That's it. They're not called to marriage. That's it. Now, in addition to that, there are those who are in perfectly good health 
that have such self-control that they are able to master their bodies and there is not a great danger of them falling into sexual sin. If you have mastered your body in such a way that you are not in grave danger of falling into sexual sin, then you have the ability to be a special kind of person who is not called to the ordinary rule. The ordinary rule is it is not good for man to be alone. That's the ordinary rule. Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of mankind, for all of history, it is not good for man to be alone, get married. But for some people, a small portion of the population who are in good health, they are called to singleness for the purpose of fulfilling some sort of mission. That mission is to take risks, to take dangers, to put themselves in a place where they are at risk of bodily harm for the gospel. These are people that would go in and be fitting to go into places like communist China, former Soviet Union, things like that, where you can take the gospel at risk of your life and it's not going to leave a widow or orphans. That's the idea. That is a special calling. There is a special honor to that. That is not the calling of the vast majority of the race of man. So unless you have a zeal to go and do that, and you are not desiring marriage, do not pretend like that is where you are. Be safe and flee sexual immorality. Get married. Get prepared to get married. Do it quickly. Now, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So what we have here is a general statement. Marriage is to be for life. And there is to be a cohabiting. The cohabiting involves living together in the same space, working together for dominion, having lawful seed, having holy seed to fill the earth. Even if she does depart, right? there are times where there's a need to depart, a duty to depart, remain unmarried, or be reconciled. A guilty party in a separation or divorce has no right to remarry while the other party is unmarried. And so the general rule is to remain unmarried or to reconcile. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. Again, the general rule. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, the words live with him, by the way, live with him is household. It's to household. The word Oikos is the, the Greek word for household, and it's turned into a verb here. So if you're willing to household, if she's not a believer, and she's willing to household, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to household with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. 
A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. The word, I've got to go back to the verses in between here, but I want to deal with the under bondage part. The, the word under bondage there are, is, is bound. It's a single word, it's bound. And so the idea is bound in what? It's no longer bound in covenant. The covenant's been unloosed. Abandonment ends the covenant. Is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So we are to be at peace with that, and we are to prosper in our new state. Irene is the word for peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, you don't travel to the end of the earth. You, you, don't, you don't keep constantly trying to get this person to come back and to repent and to do all that kind of stuff. You are called to peace. You go do good work. You prosper where you're at. Because you can't just chase them around hoping you're going to get them to repent. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know if you're going to get them to repent. God knows. But you don't do that. You're not called to that. So, let's back up. This idea of verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, made holy. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, made holy. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now, they are holy. What is this holiness? Is this a doctrine of justification by marrying a believer alone? Is this a doctrine of justification by being born of a believer alone? No. Some people will say this. You'll hear this. This is a Baptist line. It's funny. Try not to laugh. The idea is that if there's a believer in the house, it's going to make an unbeliever morally better than if the, unbelie- if the believer weren't there. Ha ha. Now, this is nonsense. This is not the point. What is the point? The point is, the point that has been made all throughout the scriptures. The point is, what has plainly been dealt with in terms of the idea of a holy seed throughout. The demand that believers marry believers so that they can raise believing children. What's this holiness? The holiness is a visible separation from the world. What is this visible separation from the world? It's called being in the visible church. The church is distinct from the world. So let me now take you to the handout. Let me demonstrate this principle to you. Look at Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. This is immediately after the fall, immediately after the giving of the gospel. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, which means to acquire, like to acquire a man, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his name, sorry, this time his brother Abel. Abel means breath. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the land, to the Lord. Now, notice it says the, the literal language is in the process of time is at the end of days. It's an interesting phrase. The end of days. Sounds kind of like the end of the world, right? You're used to hearing you know, the end of days or the last of days or in the last days. Right? Those are phrases you're used to hearing and you think about that being the end of time. That's not it. This is really close to the beginning of time. Like really close. Really close to the beginning of time. So what is this about? What is the end of days? What's well, the end of the days 
where there was no distinction between the church and the world. This is a change of administration of the way that the form of the world worked. The old form is passing away, and a new form of the cosmos is coming into being. That new form is the separation of the city of man from the city of God. So, at the end of days, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. This is an act of idolatry. He does worship in a way that God had not appointed. It is not by faith. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. And for you is toward you or against you. The idea there, remember earlier on, there's a curse in Genesis 3. It talks about the desire of the woman being against the husband, the desire to rule over the husband. That's a part of the curse. And so here now is this issue of dominion over sin that's being put forward. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And by the way, Everybody thinks that the answer there is, yes, we are our brother's keeper. No, Cain was not a total moron. Cain understood that men were keepers of beasts and of the ground, but not of other men. Men were keepers of beasts and of the ground, but not of other men. Keepers of sheep rule the sheep. Keepers of brothers rule the brothers. What Cain is doing is saying, I don't know, am I responsible for him? Am I, am I over him in authority? So the answer is no. But this is, this is a red herring. God knows that Cain knows that Cain murdered Abel. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Notice the civil magistrate had not been instituted yet, and there's no, you're going to be executed for murder. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Cain's worried that even without authorization, people are going to kill him. And God says, Okay, no one can kill you. If they do, they'll get seven times the curse. No civil magistrate yet. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, dwelt in the land of Nod, or wandering, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. Significant distortion of marriage. As soon as there's a leaving of the city of God 
what we have here is this distortion of marriage. Polygamy. The name of one was Ada, the name of the second, Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Right, So he's, he's a father in the sense that he is the one who developed an extraordinary ability to have livestock. He's a rancher. This guy's a cattle king. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute or pipe. So instrumentation, creating arts here. We have the development of, of, of ranching and now we have the development of the arts. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Right? This is another art of metallurgy. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Then Lamech said to his wives, so notice here they have all this dominion work going on in the city of man. And what are we told in the scriptures about those who are opposed to the church? They exist to hew out stone and lumber, to carry water, to pile up silver. That's what they're for. They pile up silver for the elect, like mountains. They create wealth that we get to exploit. That's what they do. Their hatred of God and their hatred of the church, they still do productive economic work. And it creates wealth that we get to enjoy. And so we see them doing that activity, even there. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. So here's this vengeful attitude apart from lawful order. This is, this is what man does in man's law when man does not have the law of God to know what is just crime and what is a just penalty for that crime. He makes it so that there are disproportionate penalties based upon the vengeful wrath of a ruler this hyper-patriarch here, taking the sword into his hand, taking multiple wives into his hand, arrogance. And we get, we get a zoom out, we go to the city of man and its establishment, and it's kind of going into future generations, and then we come back. We come back to the line, the holy line of the holy seed. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, which means appointed. He's appointed in the place of Abel. And it points to Christ as the one who's appointed in our place. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That phrase, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, that's a very important little phrase. That shows us what the new age is. The issue isn't that this is the first time prayer is instituted. This is not the first time that God was worshipped. Right, that happened earlier. Abel was murdered for worshipping rightly. This is the first time that there is a church worshiping separated from the world. The calling upon the name is the idea of a set of persons who worship apart from the world. And so we have here the idea of the church and the Holy Seed in the church. 
the two cities, side by side. Now, if you jump forward to Genesis 6, okay, Genesis 5 is the laying out of the generations from Adam. It's the holy seed line. And it gets us to Noah, and it talks about how there's this promise of Noah. The word Noah means rest. And the idea that he's going to give rest from the toil in the ground is sort of the idea there. There's a hope that he's the one who will bring peace or rest. And all these names point to the promise of the seed of the woman. We get to Genesis 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, began to multiply is a disappointing translation. Because the word began there is really defiled. Okay, so it's, now it came to pass when men defiled to multiply. The time when men defiled to multiply. So in order to multiply, they defiled themselves. This helps to make it very clear that the view that Douglas Wilson is now propagating, his attempt to popularize the medievalist view that this is angels copulating with humans, which is nonsense superstition from the Middle Ages. Okay, that is not, it is not what this text is about. The Nephilim are children born from human beings. This is not some unappliable, useless text for us. Beware of sex with demons. No, it is not what this is about. What this is about is marrying unbelievers. Horror of horrors. This is what destroys. So, it came to pass when man when men began when men defiled to multiply on the face of the earth. And daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, those are not demons. Those are believers. That's the holy seed. These are the sons of Elohim. Saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Okay, so the, 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 the sons of God, the believers, looked upon beautiful women and they lusted for them in their hearts and they thought because I want to gratify myself with their beauty I am going to enter into marriage so that I can enjoy them that's the thing that's the danger young men the draw to beautiful godless women is high and you have to resist that it will bring you shame it will bring you pain it will bring you misery it will cause your children to be a grief to you. It will make all of your labors be given to godless women. It will make it a vanity. They took wives for themselves of whom they chose. Of all whom they chose. Any wife they want. They didn't take the limits of only marrying in the Lord. God has given that as a restraint. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. So the 120 years of the flood. There were giants on the earth in those days. Nephilim. Now, there are obviously literal giants in the Bible. You have Goliath, for example, and his brothers. But the point here is not that these men are physical giants, although that very well could be the case with some sort of a curse that's coming on them. 
It could be something that's, that's a part of the, the curse here that's happening. But the idea here of the giants is that these are mighty men of extreme height in terms of their power. So they are mighty men on the earth. Why are they so mighty? Why are they so impressive? Let me ask you a question. If you lived 900 years and you could have and you could have compounding interest in your 401k for 900 years, how many times do you get to double that? Do you think capital was more in demand in the early stages of the world or now? Do you think that people were willing in the process of trying to fill a wilderness planet with gigantic creatures that they had to deal with. Do you think that capital was something people would pay a higher interest for back then or a lower interest for? They were mighty because these men were able, across 900 years, their minds were like great libraries. Their skill was as though they themselves were a city of craftsmen. And their wealth was piled like mountains. These men were of good working stock for almost a millennium. Imagine dying then and giving off that inheritance to a wretched, useless, pagan son. What kind of a terror amongst the race of men would that son be? These are the Nephilim. These are the giants. These are men that wreak violence in the earth. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be numbered 120 years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Notice these Nephilim are mighty men. They're men. They're Adam. They're not demon spawn. They're not Hercules. They are not half man, half demon. These are men. These are men. These are men. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God is not going to destroy everybody on the earth because there's demon spawn mixed with man. That's not it. That's not the reason for the flood. The reason for the flood is total depravity. The reason for the flood is the doctrine of total depravity. Evil thoughts continually. The constant transgression of the law. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. Was God actually sorry about it? Like, Is this like a statement that God changed his mind? No. The point is that God, who is unchanging, immutable, right? he is eternal, he's thinking, I'm really glad that my plan is happening exactly the way I want because now I get to show how I hate evil. So that's what it means by he's sorry. It's, I get to now display my hatred of evil. I hate wicked men. And I'm going to destroy them. The planet was probably filled with hundreds of millions or billions of people by this point. The time of propagation. 900 years, people. How many children can you have if you're healthy for most of that? The amount of children being born. The filling of the earth is occurring. Cities are made. Quickly. The Lord was sorry that he made Adam on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. I don't see any uh, demon spawn listed in there. Just man and beast. Seem to be a couple categories. Man and beast, no demon spawn. Missing that. Creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then we go into dealing with Noah, and we have the Noahic covenant, and we have sacrifices, and we have the establishment of the civil magistrate, and the strain of evil through that. This is the idea of the holy seed. We're going to see this. We're going to get into the, the covenant with Abraham, where we're going to get the sign of the covenant, and you give it to the children. Right? These mark off holy children from unholy children. Households that are governed by the word of God, and households that are not. These are the distinguishers. So go back with me to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. The children are holy because they're in a household where one of the two officers, a husband or a wife, a master or a mistress, have made profession. And the husband, who's unbelieving, or the wife, who's unbelieving, is made holy because they're a part of a household where one of the officers, the other spouse, has made a profession. That household has become a territory marked by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's disputed territory, but it's his. When it's in dispute, he owns it. And so he's put a marker there, there's a banner there, there's one officer there who is proclaiming Christ, and there's a struggle. And in that struggle, the children are Jesus's. And so is the unbelieving spouse. They are visibly Christ's. He owns them. They're under his banner. He is their covenant God. And so that's the idea there. They're holy. They're visibly differentiated. They're not in the city of man. They're in the city of God. Visibly. Does that mean they're saved? No. It means, though, that they have a greater condemnation if they reject it. And if they believe, there's a greater blessing because they've received the ordinances and oracles of God and it's been used to life, and life unto life, and strength unto strength. Now, this other idea of householding, that's the other complexity here in this text that we need to deal with. What does it mean to household? What does it mean to household, to live with? Well, a lot of people will say this. They'll say, when it says in verse 12, but of the rest, I not the Lord say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And the way they interpret that is, if they're willing to just be in the same house. doesn't matter if you're living together. doesn't matter if you're doing anything else. If they're just willing to be under the same roof, just stick it out. What if they're abusive? What if they're stealing all the money? Gambling it. What if they're doing all of the things that are destructive to the entire purpose of the household? The idea of householding is something that we have to be able to interpret Scripture with Scripture and not have it go against itself. So look here now at the handout again. Ezra 9 and Ezra 10, I've printed them out for you so that you can look at them for yourselves later in more detail, they lay out for you a time when 
there were unbelieving wives who were willing to live in the same house, and yet they were obligated, the, the believing men were obligated to divorce them. So what happens there? Go to Ezra 10, and not even the beginning of there, but go to the verse 19. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Right, the short version is this. Some of them had married pagan wives, and those pagan wives weren't willing to put away their idols. And they weren't willing to teach the children to worship Yahweh. Those wives had to be put away. Some of them married pagan wives who were willing to submit to the law order of King Jesus in the home. And those pagan wives became visibly a part of the church and were not to be put away. This has to inform what we understand the Apostle Paul to be meaning when he says, willing to live with, willing to household. The household has a function. Ministry of welfare, health care, and education. The household is a place for dominion. It is a place for caring for the bodies. It is a place for caring for the souls. So there has to be a willingness to submit to the law order and to not have idolatry, not have idolatry brought in. Nehemiah chapter 13, look at the next page, deals with some of the same issues, but separated by a chunk of time. Verse 23, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. That's a pretty easy way of differentiating between the ones that are willing to teach and catechize in the Hebrew faith and the ones that weren't. Which culture was dominant in the home? Did they speak the language of Zion or did they speak the language of Ashdod? Verse 30 says, Thus I cleanse them of every pagan thing. That fits in together with the Ezra text. So we have both of those together dealing with it helps to define for us what it means to be willing to household. So we have the two lawful reasons for divorce are adultery, pranea, sexual immorality, and we have abandonment. That's laid out in our confession. And abandonment is not, not being willing to household and adultery is sexual sin with the body, not with the spouse. Now, Verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one a gift, right? We're talking about marriage and singleness. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Right? Previously, it was a duty of people to into the covenant, into the visible church to get circumcised. Gentiles should get circumcised in the old covenant. We're in a period of time where Paul is saying, not a duty anymore, don't do it. Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Well, wait a second. Genesis 17 is a direct commandment to get circumcised. Right? 
So what is Paul saying? He's saying it's not a commandment anymore. Verse 20, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But, if you can be made free, rather use it. So notice that, okay, fine, you're a slave, you're called, you're made a Christian while you're a slave, do well as a slave, and do what you can lawfully to get your freedom. Do what you can to get your freedom. And there's a duty of believers to help each other to get their freedom. Where It's our duty to improve our station. The scriptures do not teach stoicism. They don't teach asceticism. They don't teach an unconcern for our outward condition. They teach us to use lawful means to improve our outward condition. Verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. There's a freedom there. We are free from the doctrines and commandments of men even if we are slaves. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. No matter how free you are, how rich you are, how powerful you are, you are a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are commanded, you are obligated to obey every jot and tittle of his least wish. Whatever pleases him in the least bit, that is your duty. And that is what's good for you. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. You are a slave, you were bought. He paid for you with his blood. Do not become slaves of men. It's an offense against Christ if you manage yourself so poorly that you become a slave of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Verse 24 is not a statement to not seek freedom and to not seek improvement. Paul just made that abundantly clear. The point is be content with where you're at and seek to use lawful means to improve your condition. Verse 25, now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. The idea here is, here are young women, here are unmarried women, there's no commandment for them to either marry or not get married. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Notice the word bound. It's again that idea of being bound or covenanted. Do not seek to be loosed. Does that mean that under no condition should you seek divorce? No. We already have those listed out in the rest of Scripture. But the point is, don't think it's a bad thing and therefore just abandon it. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So this advice... He's advice for a very particular time. The Great Tribulation's about to happen. The Great Tribulation's about to happen. And he's saying, because of that, because of that, maybe hold off for a while. Cool your jets. Can you, can you wait this out a little bit? Because this is going to be horrifying. And it would be best if you're not pregnant or nursing a baby. Can you, can you hold off? Okay, well, if you can't, it's not a sin to get married. This is the forcefulness of his advice. Maybe hold off. And if you can't, that's okay. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. People try to take this and they try to establish the basis of nunneries and monastic life with perpetual vows of singleness. What nonsense. All, all that medieval nonsense. 
built on this. The Apostle Paul's light advice for the Great Tribulation, used as a basis for perpetual vows of singleness. Now, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. They're going to have trouble in the flesh because they're going to be married during the Great Tribulation. That's why. Verse 29, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. The time is short. The time is short for what? People want to take this and they want to say, the time is short until Jesus comes back. This is 2,000 years ago, friends. I don't think that's what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the time is short for the Great Tribulation. It's going to happen real quick. And so, therefore, be ready for it. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Right? When you're in the middle of a very bad situation, you just deal with it. This is not the advice for every situation. right? You go, stop crying, get over it, keep going, hustle. Right? You don't do that all the time. But if you're under fire, you do that. Right? Somebody, somebody's getting shot at and they start to cry and you go, shut up, move. Like, that's what you do. You go, you can cry when we're out of the gunfire. That's what you do. That's what this is. This is a statement about when you're in the midst of a time like the Great Tribulation, what you do is you act like you're, you, you put yourself at risk like you're not married. You hold off weeping as though there's nothing to weep about. You hold off rejoicing as though there's nothing to party about. And you deal with buying like you're not going to possess anything. And this idea of possessing, the word there for possess, kind of points to the idea of possessing property that's capital property. Okay, so this idea of, think about Jerusalem. What did everybody do there? Jesus told them, hey, you know what? This whole place is going to be destroyed. Not one brick is going to be left on top of the other within the lifetime of everybody here. And so what did they do? They sold all of their real estate. That's what they did. Every Christian in the place sold their real estate. And that's supposed to be the basis for apostolic communism? They sold their real estate and they blessed each other. And, and so now from now on, we should have church-run communism. This is how some people read that text. They're not paying attention to the context at all. The, the context is the city's going to be destroyed. The real estate's going to be worth nothing. Sell it fast. Other people don't believe this. You believe this. You can get a good deal. And so Paul is now saying to these people, if you have property and if you're buying, act like you are not a possessor of that. Deal with your capital like you're trying to deal with a short-term problem. We're in a disaster scenario. Try to make sure you live. Don't try to get a better rate of interest. Right? That's... That's the idea. Use your capital to survive. Verse 31, And those who use this world as not misusing it. Right? So don't, don't make temporary pleasures into the goal. Make glorifying God into the goal. For the form of this world is passing away. Right? The form, the outward, the outward order of the cosmos is, is what it's saying. It says the schema or plan of the cosmos is passing away. The order of things right then is ending. What's happening there? The destruction of the old system, the old administration of the covenant of grace with the destruction of the temple, the great tribulation and the great apostasy. Those are all going to occur. And that's going to reorder the world. And it did. This is not the time you know, to worry about getting the best rate on the government bonds. Verse 32, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. He who, 
how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Right? So ordinarily, it's a good thing for a man to care about pleasing his wife and for a wife to care about pleasing his hus- her husband. That's ordinarily good. That's ordinarily how households are built. That's ordinarily how children get raised. That's how you have the church being advanced. In crazy times like the Great Tribulation, that is not a temporary goal. The decisive point is not die. And so you try to get through it, and you try to get out of there and make it through the Great Tribulation. Verse 34. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. You know the word world there is cosmos each time. What did he say was just about to pass away? The plan or order of the cosmos. You see how all of this is in the context of all the stuff that's happening right there? Verse 35, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, and this is about a father behaving towards his daughter, if any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he, ple- what he wishes. Right? So the idea here is, you have a daughter and you're worried that she's going to be too old to get a good husband, even though it's the great tribulation coming on, Okay, you think you need to get her married in order to get her a good husband right now. That's a risk. You're assessing, is it going to be better for her to potentially be pregnant and nursing during the Great Tribulation? Or is it going to be better for her to not be able to get a husband afterwards? Well, that's a judgment call. That's the idea. Remember when Jesus is talking about, you know, pray that you're it's not on the Sabbath or in winter, and, you know, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing, right? It's the same idea. If any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but his power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Right? So a patriarch has the means to provide for his daughter, and he wants to keep her from the troubles of the Great Tribulation being married during that. He can do that. He can do that, not sin. It's a lawful reason to stop his wife, his daughter from marrying at that time. Verse 38, So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Is this true forever, for all time? No, the Great Tribulation is not forever or all time. Just a hint, real quick. When there are horrifically bad scenarios, and you see them coming on, or you're in the middle of them, Holding off on marriage can be wise. That's the point here. 39. A wife is bound by a law as long as her husband lives. The idea of covenant. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Look at that restraint. That wasn't there in Genesis 4. Only in the Lord. They married whoever they wanted. Whoever they chose. Not in the Lord. We are restrained to marry in the Lord. We marry a believer. And this idea of death, this can be a literal death or it can be a covenantal death. Covenantal death in the form of divorcing as the innocent party and the guilty party is covenantally dead. 
Verse 40. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. So in a time of great difficulty, remaining unmarried is the advice of the Apostle Paul. And also, if you have the gifting of singleness, either you have never been married when you're able to contain yourself, or you have been married and now you've reached a point where you could contain yourself, you have the ability to do service, to do work that you might not be able to do, that you would not be able to do, if you were married. And so the question is, do you have some work, some special calling, some mission that there's a zeal for and a gifting for and an opportunity for that would justify not marrying? That is what the call of singleness is. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Marsh? Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7? Yes. Sorry. Sure. Well, I would suggest that the season is 90 days, that I think that most people fasting for 90 days would have a number of health problems. <laughs> so I think the season is not what's being talked about. It's a season or a period of time for prayer and fasting, right? And so I think that the idea of the kind of length of time that somebody could deal with a fast is similar to what's being talked about. But uh, in the Greek... Um, let me see. The, the word is chiron, which is just time. It's like, uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you something afterwards to show you that, but it's just, it's just time for time for a period, indeterminate. So the question is, what is the mark that was on Cain? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's a visible mark. That's the point of it. Um, I don't know what the mark was. Um, but it was something that was visible and that he would have uh, given information about it to the church. Right? It would have, he would have given to them a warning about this curse and told them what the mark was, uh, caused them to be aware of it so they would avoid doing it. And that way, if somebody noticed that it was Cain, the result would be, that people would seek to flee from him or stay away from him. Um, and the effect of that was to allow the city of man to prosper and grow unharassed. Okay. Anything else? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to continue to understand and to have clear in mind the book of 1 Corinthians. We ask that you would 
bless us to have wisdom and knowledge that you would help us to apply things well. You'd help us to understand how to use these things. We ask that you would help us to value marriage and godly children. Help us to care about the holy seed and the idea of holy households. We ask that you would help us to see individuals baptized, households baptized, whole nations baptized. That the earth would be filled with covenanted nations. That the knowledge of you would be manifest in all the spheres. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 144, part 2. Verse 9. Please stand. O God, I will sing a new song upon the psaltery. Right, the new idea of a new song. Uh, the Psalms are made new. They are a new song. Um, and they are made new by Christ's fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Covenant because we're able to look back on them in fulfillment. Just as um, we take all of the types and shadows and we look back on them in fulfillment, as we read the Psalms, they're full of types and shadows. It's written with Old Covenant language. And so we have all this stuff in there about sacrifices and, and, and you know, sultry. We, we have the, the idea of, of, of instruments and all those kinds of things. And we, go, we look back on all those as the types and shadows, and it's new. It's made new because of the fact that we look at it from the fulfillment point. Just as our hearts are made new by the knowledge of Christ, and just as we are made new men, and just as the heavens and the earth are made new by the reign of Christ. And so these are new songs. O God, I will sing a new song upon the psaltery, and on the ting-stringed instrument I'll sing praises to you. Remember, the instruments are only used in public worship in the temple. And so this idea, this points to public worship and to sacrifice. The instruments were played during sacrifices. And so we are reminded of that. That means we should be thinking about the sacrifice of Christ as we're gathered together singing this in the public worship. For it is he that unto kings will bring their salvation, and he who rescues his servant David from deadly swords. Save me from the hand of strangers whose mouth speaks vanity, and save me from their right hand, which is the hand of falsehood. So there, that false covenanting again. Grant that our sons may be as plants growing strong in their youth. Right? These are covenant sons. These are, these are the holy seed. The idea that we're praying that they would grow strong. That we would see strong young men in the church. And our daughters as cornerstones polished for a palace. Right? So they're going to be stable women. They're going to be beautiful, polished for a palace. They're going to have grace about them. That is the idea here. Strong, beautiful, graceful women. When our barns are filled to the brim with the, with the most bountiful stores, when our sheep bring thousands and then ten thousands fill our fields, right? the Lord brings prosperity. When our oxen are strong for work, when there's no breaking in, there's security from crime. When there's no mischief going around and no complaining cries, happy are they who find themselves in such a case as this. Yes, all those whose God is the Lord, truly happy are they. The knowledge of God gives eternal life, and the knowledge of God tends to create social order and beauty. And that's the idea here. 